0: Hey, if you missed the announcement in our last episode, soon we are going to start bringing you news that is not just about the coronavirus. And in a few weeks, as part of this new plan, the show is going to have a new name. Consider this. Just to be clear, though, our coverage of the pandemic will not stop when that happens. We want to hear what you think. Our email is coronavirusdaily at npr.org. Okay, here's the show. It's getting hotter. A mask can be uncomfortable. And honestly, people are just tired.
1: On one hand, everybody wants to open up the economy. Uh, On the other hand, you want to make sure that people are not um, uh, needlessly getting sick or, or, or needlessly dying.
0: In Austin, Texas, Mayor Steve Adler is dealing with a surge of new cases and hospitalizations. And he wants to require people to wear masks. But he says... He can only recommend them. Uh, At this point, I can just make recommendations to the community. The governor of Texas could require masks, but he says he doesn't think he should. So the mayor says basically it's up to individual people to make a choice between wearing a mask and someone else getting sick or even dying.
2: This community is going to have to decide just how important um, those lives are.
0: Coming up, there's a cost to staying at home, too. And it's growing, especially if you're on your own. This is Coronavirus Daily from NPR. I'm Kelly McEvers. It is Tuesday, June 16th. A colleague of ours here at NPR, producer Ashley Westerman, recently went to visit her grandpa. Here
1: we are, the Western Kentucky Veterans Center.
0: Paul Westerman is 100 years old. He served in World War II. He's been married 76 years. But his wife can't be with him because she's in hospice care. So Paul is basically alone, except for the nurses in his veterans' home. Hi! Ashley couldn't visit him inside.
1: All right, so I'm up at the window, and the nurse is going to give me a call. Hello? Hello? How you doing? Hi, Grandpa. How are you? Hey, you're looking well. Thank you. It's so nice to see one of you because, you know, uh, they quarantined this everybody, so I'm pretty lonesome. <laughs> They're just trying to keep you safe. Yeah. <laughs> How have y'all been doing over there? March
0: 16th, exactly three months ago, was when President Trump issued the first national guidelines for social distancing, which included no more visits inside nursing homes. A lot of them still don't allow visitors. And millions more people just live alone.
1: I think if they went to work on that disease, all over the world could be working on it we well, be trying different things on it, you know. Well, they they are. They're working on it.
0: The hard thing is that right now, with coronavirus, keeping the most vulnerable people isolated saves lives. In nursing homes and soldiers' homes that failed to get that right, tens of thousands of people have died. But there is a cost to the isolation, too.
1: All right. I've got to go. It's cold out here. <laughs> I'll talk to you in a little bit, all right? I love you. I, I do, too. You, uh, <laughs> you appreciate <it>. Bye, Grandpa.
0: <laughs> Julianne Holt-Lunstad at Brigham Young University studies how social connections affect our health. She told Morning Edition host Steve Inskeep that isolation can affect your heart rate, your blood pressure, your stress levels, even your immune system.
1: In fact, there's some some research out of Carnegie Mellon that has shown that people who are more socially connected have stronger immune responses and are more able to um, fight off a cold virus. And those that are less socially connected are less able to fight off the cold virus and are more susceptible also to respiratory illnesses.
2: You know, once in a while, I read an account of someone who lived alone for a while, and they will comment on the power of touch or the power of not touching anyone for a long time.
1: Yeah, some of the classic research has shown that infants and and young children in custodial care that lacked human contact failed to thrive and even were more likely to to die. And in some of my own research, we've found that close physical contact uh, has been linked to the neuropeptide oxytocin, um, which has been linked to social bonding and uh, stress regulation.
2: Listening to you, I'm feeling like you're describing human contact almost like a vitamin or an aspect of the diet. You know, if you're not getting a vitamin or you're not getting any protein, that probably isn't a problem for a week or maybe even a month, but after a while, it becomes a real problem.
1: There's an interesting study done by MIT where they found um, that going without food for 10 hours showed a similar neurosignature as being isolated for 10 hours. Suggesting that these cravings for others, you know, for human contact, may have a real biological basis to it. Can social isolation actually kill you? Absolutely. We have good data that it increases our risk of earlier death from all causes. And the overall magnitude of this effect on, on mortality is comparable with the risk associated with obesity and exceeds that of physical inactivity um, and even air pollution.
2: What are some practical things that people could do to help themselves out of this situation to mitigate the harm that they're facing?
1: The first thing that people can do is to really nurture their existing relationships by maintaining those connections as much as possible. So whether that's virtually by video chats or or telephone calls or connecting with the people who are around you from a safe distance, um, talking to neighbors across the street or across a balcony And then also there's some evidence around creative expression, not just, you know, painting a painting or or performing music, but writing, cooking, that these can help reduce feelings of loneliness and the distress associated with loneliness as well.
0: That was Julianne holt Lundstad with Morning Edition host Steve Enske. Whether you have been relatively isolated or not the past three months, one thing a lot of us have in common is that we could probably use a haircut. More hairstylists are going back to work, despite the risks. NPR correspondent Chris Arnold, who is based in Boston, went to see what that's like.
3: When you're a man of a certain age, not getting a haircut for a few months, the, the thinning hair on top starts wisping around, the sides stick out all crazy, it is not a good look. And it seemed kind of beyond the help of like a YouTube haircut video. So when the guy who cuts my hair, his name is Vincent Cox, when he told me that the salon he works at was opening up, I thought, well... I mean, I don't know, what, what am I going to risk my health just for vanity?
1: All right, so now we have to come to a different section of the haircut. Okay.
3: Yeah, I couldn't take it. I broke down and I booked an appointment. Vincent is having me hold my mask in place, but move that ear loop so he can cut behind my ear. Put your left hand over your face. Okay. The salon actually has an outdoor back patio, so Vincent's cutting my hair out there because it seems safer. We're both wearing masks. I set up these stations outside. I brought the mirrors in from home. Vince has been cutting hair for 45 years, and he's had to improvise before. He's cut rock stars' hair on airplanes. Oh yeah, I traveled with the Aerosmith, the cars, the Rolling Stones. Uh, That was dangerous duty, too, you know, in the 70s. (laughs) That's a different different kind of dangerous. A different kind of danger. (laughs) Vincent says actually he and all the other hairstylists he knows were shocked to hear that hair salons were among the first businesses opening up in Massachusetts and some other states, because he says it just doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. I mean, I would go work in an office. The other guy's six feet away in a desk. I'm not touching him and running my fingers through his hair. Right. So, um, yeah, like you're you're cutting my hair right now, and your fingers just kind of bump my eyelid. It's like it's impossible not to exactly to have contact. And so, right? it's this is not a joke. And as we talk, it becomes clear that it's really not a joke. Vincent is pretty scared. He's 65 years old, and 80 percent of COVID 19 deaths have been in people his age or older. I cut my dentist's hair. He was like just warning me and telling me, Vincent, don't take off your N 95s. I, You know, my doctor, they're worried sick about me. But when the salon opened up, he couldn't collect unemployment anymore, so he felt he had no choice but to come back to work. He's sterilizing his chair and scissors, washing clients' hair himself, working 12-hour days worried about getting sick. It's been uh, one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life. I was almost in tears the first day. I was almost in tears. I was kind of having a little bit of a breakdown and I talked to my friend, and he's a retired army general. He texted me and asked me how I was doing and I, I went on a rant of about 10-15 minutes. And it was really good because a general, when he gives you a kind of a word of advice, you kind of listen, you know. And he says, Vince, just remember your friends are behind you. And so that's the best advice I've gotten. The salon owner says he's comfortable with the steps to keep employees and customers safe, spreading out the chairs inside, cutting hair on the patio, the masks, the gloves. But Vincent and stylists at other salons, too, are worried. They say they feel like canaries in a coal mine, like test subjects to see whether parts of the economy where you can't social distance are opening up too fast.
0: That was NPR's Chris Arnold. A cheap drug that has been used for decades to treat arthritis and asthma might also help some of the sickest coronavirus patients. It's called dexamethasone. It's an anti-inflammatory. And one study out of the UK today that looked at more than 2,000 patients said for those who were sick enough to end up on a ventilator, the drug did reduce the risk of death. The catch, and it's a big one, is that researchers put the word out in a press release without the underlying results yet. While the news is easy to find on social media, scientists are waiting to see the fine print. For more on the coronavirus, you can stay up to date with all the news on your local public radio station and on NPR.org. Additional reporting in this episode by our colleagues at NPR's Morning Edition. We will be back with more tomorrow. I'm Kelly McEvers. Thanks for listening to the show. For James McBride, racism in this country
2: has been a disease. It's been the cancer that has just been killing us, and now we want to address the problem. I mean, you can't address the cancer until you know you have it, and these people are seeing the cancer. Author James McBride on protests, a pandemic, and his new book. Listen to It's Been a Minute from NPR.